Will you please turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 7, Matthew chapter 7. We're going to be looking at four verses toward the end of Matthew chapter 7. We want everybody to be able to look on as we do, so these brothers have some Bibles. They're going to make their way to the back as they do. If you need a Bible, get their attention, and they'll get one of those to you. And those Bibles are marked at Matthew 7, so you don't need to fumble around to find it. You'll be able to go right there. And you can keep that Bible as our gift to you. We want everybody to own a copy of the Word of God. The passage that we're going to be looking at today, these four verses in verses 24 to 27, are the final verses that record the words of Jesus in this famous Sermon on the Mount. And you can see that in your Bible. If you have a red letter edition, then the next two verses, verses 28 and 29, are not red letters. They're commentary by uh, Matthew. If you don't have a red letter edition... Then the quotation marks stop at the end of verse 27, and then you have in non-quotes verses 28 and 29. So we are almost finished with the Sermon on the Mount. Next week, we will look at verses 28 and 29. And then the following week, two weeks from today, we will actually look at the first passage in Matthew chapter 8 because it is an illustration of the Sermon on the Mount. And so we have three more messages counting today in this uh, series, the Sermon on the Mount. So you may be wondering what we're going to do uh, after that. Maybe you're not, but I will tell you, I'll tell you anyway. Um, after that, the sermon, these uh, next three messages, then the uh, first Sunday in March, March the 1st, my wife and I will be out of town, so I won't be here. We'll be out of town celebrating our, our anniversary. But then for the four remaining uh, Sundays in March, we will be looking at the 25 verses that are the book of Philemon. So if you want to read ahead those 25 verses, you can, uh, you can do that, and we will have four messages in the book of Philemon. Then there's Easter, April 5th, and April the 12th, we'll start a series that I've been telling you about for a while, but that will be the uh, Genesis chapters 1 through 12. That will start on April the 12th. So we'll finish up the next few weeks' Sermon on the Mount. I'll be gone. We'll do Philemon, Easter, and then April 12th, we will start Genesis 1 through 12. That same day, on April the 12th, that we start that series in this hour, the worship hour, during the Discovering Govern God hour, we're going to do a series called Why You Can Trust the Bible, Seven Reasons Why You Can Trust the Bible in Discovering God. Today, Matthew chapter 7, verses 24 to 27. On July 1st, 1980, a sparkling new hotel opened in Kansas City, and it did so to much publicity and excitement. The new Hyatt Regency featured a huge lobby atrium and walkways above it that spanned from one side of the hotel to the other. One of those walkways was directly above another. Just over a year after the opening, the hotel was the site of a large event, a dance that took place in that beautiful lobby atrium. A few people, a very few, gathered on the walkways to watch the dance below. There were about 40 people on the lowest walkway, and there were another 20 on the walkway directly above it. And with only 20 people standing on that higher walkway, its beams could not support the weight it, its weight, and it collapsed onto the one below, and both of those walkways fell into the lobby. 114 people were killed, and 219 were injured, in what was until September 11, 2001, the worst accident from a structural collapse in the United States. Investigators later discovered a design flaw that caused the accident. 
The upper walkway was supported partly by steel rods connected to beams in the ceiling. So it was kind of hanging from the the ceiling. But the one below it also had steel rods, but they did not go to the ceiling, but rather they went to the walkway above. So that higher walkway had to support its own weight and the weight of the one below, and that's why it gave way with only 20 people on it. Now, the hotel was later restored, but this time they used steel columns to support those walkways from the ground up. Instead of being supported by rods that were secured above, it would be supported by the firm ground below. Now, that sounds much safer, and it has indeed proven to be so, as the foundation is sufficient to support the columns, and the columns sufficient to support the weight of the walkways. And people coming into that newly restored hotel were no doubt reassured of the hotel's structural safety when they saw the large columns extending from the floor to the walkways. Now those walkways have proper support because the load is on the foundation rather than on the ceiling or on the walkway above. And as I say, that's proven to hold hold firm. The hotel structure has been fine now in the years since. But suppose those new columns were built on a weak foundation. Whether that foundation was made of inferior materials or it was resting on ground that's not firm enough to support it. When you walk into the lobby, you wouldn't be able to tell that the foundation was weak because you can't see it. You only see the columns and the walkways and the beautiful superstructure. You'd only know that the foundation is weak when that foundation was put under some kind of pressure that would cause it to give way. And in today's passage, Jesus speaks of two houses that are constructed by two different builders. And both of the houses look the same. From above ground, they both look nice and they both look safe and they both look well constructed. But beneath them, there is a major difference. One is built on a strong, solid foundation and the other on a feeble foundation that's ultimately unable to support the house. And you don't know the difference until a storm comes that exposes the weakness of the one and the strength of the other. This is what Jesus says in verse 24. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house. Yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. Let's ask the Lord to help us as we look into his word. Father, again, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for the opportunity to open it, to have the freedom to be here and to do so publicly and without fear, to have the desire to do so, given to us only by your Holy Spirit. And Lord, we ask you to grant us a focused attention upon what the Lord Jesus Christ has to tell us about how and upon what to build our lives. And as a result, may we be people who bring glory to your name. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. 
Now, each week for our message, we have inserted in your program an outline. We have that for you today as well. And I encourage you to take a look at that if you don't have it out already. And we have five points that I'd like to make about this passage. The first is this. Christianity is more than profession. Christianity is more than profession. More than profession. Now, if you were with us for last Sunday's message, and many of you were not able to be with us for that because, as I said, of the storm, but if you were uh, able to be with us for that message in the Sermon on the Mount, last week we looked at verses 21 to 23, or perhaps you were able to listen to it online this past week, and I know a number of you did that who were unable to be here in person. If you heard last week's message, then this first point, that Christianity is more than profession, that may sound familiar to you. Because the first point in last week's message was, Christians do not merely profess Christ. So why do I, in effect, repeat that now? Well, it's because this passage in verse 24 starts with the word, therefore. So when what Jesus says now, following in verses 24 to 27, he's connecting what he says with the verses that precede in verses 21 to 23. In verses 21 to 23, the issue was what people said versus what they actually did. In verse 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. And so that message was about doing the will of the Father. And I failed last week to give the take-home truth, which we have at the bottom of your outline this week and every week. And so for those of you who haven't been able to sleep for an entire week wondering about the take-home truth, it, it was this. Christians are characterized by obedience. Christians are characterized by obedience. We saw that last week. And the issue in both passages... The passage last week, verses 21 to 23, now this week, 24 to 27, the issue is the same in both. Doing the will of the Father in verse 21, and in our passage today, Jesus says, the wise man takes these words of mine, and in verse 24, puts them into practice. And the foolish man, verse 26, does not put them into practice. So for several weeks really in a row, As we've gone through the Sermon on the Mount, we've seen Jesus emphasizing obedience and disobedience. And he's piling up his heart-searching teaching, one passage after another, calling us to examine whether or not we are genuine children of God or whether we are merely going through the motions. This started back in verse 13. In verses 13 and 14, Jesus said there are two gates, narrow and wide, and there are two roads narrow and broad, and there are two destinies, life or destruction. In verses 15 to 20, he warned of false teachers who are wolves dressed like sheep. And last week in verses 21 to 23, he warned of false professors who call Jesus Lord but do not live as if he is Lord. And now in verses 24 to 27, yet again, he's warning of living in disobedience and warning of the calamity that will, that will eventually produce. Now, why is Jesus doing this? Why this relentless and almost overwhelming, convicting teaching from Jesus at this point in the Sermon on the Mount? Well, remember, friends, I told you a few weeks ago when we looked at verse 13, that verse 13 of chapter 7 begins the end of the Sermon on the Mount. 
Jesus is now, in effect, giving the invitation at the conclusion of all that he has said in chapters 5 through 7. We are then now in the invitation of this masterful and powerful and profound and yet troubling message. And so the last few weeks are very convicting. As Jesus calls us to examine our allegiance and he warns us of anything and anyone in addition to him. Now with all of that difficulty, and it's been difficult for me as I have studied it and presented it as it has been to you to hear, and Jesus intends it that way. At the end of the sermon, he is probing and he is convicting. But I want to assure you that at the end of this message, we will offer some relief. Some relief from the really frightening words we've heard from Jesus these last few weeks. So I encourage you to please stay with me. The foundations of these two houses, then, are obedience and disobedience, respectively. Like an unsuspecting lodger or conventioneer who goes into a hotel, a hotel that has a faulty support structure, you can't tell that there's a problem because in the case of the foundation, it's underground. The building itself, the house itself, like those wolves in sheep's clothing, or those who talk a good game that we saw last week, Like them, the building itself looks fine. But what the house is truly built on will be revealed at some point. And Jesus says in verses 25 and 27, that point is when the rain came down, the streams rose, the winds blew, and beat against that house. And when that happened, the foundation of either obedience or disobedience was revealed. In the midst of the storm, the house stands or it falls. In the midst of difficulty, the life of the professing believer is shown to be built on obedience or not. It stands or it falls. Now, those storms can be the circumstances that test the reality of our faith. Remember, I've told you many times that the words in your New Testament, faith and belief, come from the same uh, Greek word. So difficulty and trials in our lives can test the reality of our faith. That is what we claim to believe, whether or not we are merely professing what we believe or actually possessing that. And sometimes God gives pop quizzes for these tests. Sometimes, without warning, He allows a circumstance to come into our lives, often a difficult circumstance, in order to reveal where we are in our belief. James famously tells us that. James says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that it is the testing of your faith and produces perseverance. These tests, trials, come into our lives James says, for the purpose of testing our faith, testing what it is we believe. Now, you have the privilege of being part of a church that has as its slogan, and has had for its 13 years of existence, this slogan, that we are the family of God, built on the Word of God, to the glory of God. And I say you have that privilege, and I have that privilege that God has given us His Word, He has given us the Bible, 
And our church is, is founded upon that and built upon that. And we are seeking to build lives one life at a time based upon the truth of God's word. The question for us then is, are we taking advantage of that gift from God? His word, taught and preached and applied. And you'll know whether or not you're taking advantage of that when you come up against the trials that God sends for testing. And how you stand under that withering, sometimes difficulty. And so as example, and there could be many, many, of the commands of God in His Word and whether or not I am truly believing those and appropriating those in my life. And I will know that when the stuff happens. But as examples, in the previous chapter, in the Sermon on the Mount, chapter 6, verse 25, Jesus says, Do not worry. Almighty God, the Lord Jesus Christ, says do not worry. How are we doing? And how are we doing when it gets difficult? When the, when the storm comes? Philippians chapter 4 and verse 6, be anxious for nothing. Or Jesus' command in chapter 19 of the book of Matthew, chapter 19 and verse 6, Jesus said, what God has joined together, let no one separate. If you're a married couple, you're married for life, according to Jesus. Jesus gives two exceptions of adultery and abandonment. Other than that, you are married for, for life. And yet, how many of us, when the storm comes, when the difficulty comes, says, there's got to be a loophole. I know he's only got those two. There's got to be a fourth or a fifth or a sixth, and mine's got to be in there. Or what about God's commands to us about the use of our tongues? In gossip, slander, complaining. Philippians 2.14 says, do everything, do everything without complaining or arguing. Our obedience to these is tested when an issue arises that is contrary to what we want or what we expect, and then the mouth starts flying. And so tests come. Adverse circumstances come in order to test whether we really believe what we claim to believe. And whether our lives are built on obedience or not will sometimes be shown then in this life, in those kinds of circumstances that God allows to come for that very kinds of testing. But they will most certainly be shown. Whether or not our lives are built on obedience or disobedience will most certainly be revealed in the next life. And the Bible speaks of that. It speaks of it often. One example of that is the prophet Ezekiel in Ezekiel chapter 13. This is what the Sovereign Lord says. In my wrath I will unleash a violent wind and in my anger hailstones and torrents of rain will fall with destructive fury. I will tear down the wall you have covered with whitewash and will level it to the ground so that its foundation will be laid bare. And then Ezekiel goes on, speaking for the Lord, when it falls, you will be destroyed in it and you will know that I am the Lord. Just as Jesus said last week, in last week's passage, verses 21 to 23, many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, did we not? And I will say, I never knew you. Jesus is saying, there will come times, yes, in life, 
whether our belief, when our belief is tested and whether or not we have the foundation of obedience that he has called us to, and certainly it will be revealed in the last day. That's why I say Christianity is more than profession. But secondly in your outline, Christianity is not only more than professing, it is more than knowledge. Christianity is more than profession and it is more than knowledge. I've said that the passage last week, verses 21 to 23, and this week deal with the same issue. Doing the will of my Father in verse 21, putting into practice these words of mine in verse 24. They deal with the same issue, but there is a difference between the passage last week and the one this week. In verses 21 to 23, last week, the issue was what people say versus what they do. And in today's passage, it's in what they hear versus what they do. Verse 24 speaks of the one who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice. Verse 26, the one who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice. So notice this. Both of these builders, they're either building on the foundation of obedience or disobedience, putting into practice or not putting into practice, but both of them hear. Both of them hear the word of God. And so both of them are in the visible community of faith. Both may read the Bible. Both go to church. Both listen to sermons. Both, in our context, may buy Christian literature or may support good Christian preachers on the radio. Both hear. But one is wise and the other a fool, Jesus says. And the word translated fool, we get our English word moron from it. One is wise, the other moronic in the way he is living. Because he knows the truth, he hears the truth, but he does not apply the truth. And that's why I've said at the top of your outline, in the title of this sermon, Education for Transformation. You see, friends, what we are interested in, those of us who believe the Bible, we are not interested in simply transferring information, but we are interested in educating God's people in God's Word for the purpose of seeing transformed lives. Education for the purpose of transformation. I don't know if this radio program is still syndicated and on or not. The man who founded it is now with the Lord, but some of you may know the name D. James Kennedy. James Kennedy was a Presbyterian pastor in Fort Lauderdale, Florida, Coral Ridge Presbyterian Church. He had a television show, and he had a a radio program called Truths That Transform. And I always loved that title. These are truths that are designed to transform the individual, the life, because God is not interested in merely knowledge. God is interested in that knowledge put into practice, and the Bible calls that wisdom. So the difference in the Bible between wisdom and foolishness is not the one knows things and the other doesn't. They both know stuff. They both hear stuff. It's that one of them puts it into practice and the other does not. That's why the Bible says, Psalm 14, 1, the fool says in his heart, the fool says in his heart that there is no God. It really does say that. (laughs) 
The fool says in his heart that there is no God. Now, why is he called a fool? Because he knows there is a God. And the Bible tells us that everyone knows there is a God. Everyone has that information available to them. But it's the fool who fails to apply what he knows. So knowledge is simply information. Wisdom is the application of that knowledge. And friends, I would suggest to you that so many of us who name the name of Jesus do not need more information. We need to make application of the knowledge that we already have. I would ask you just to think about how many sermons you have heard in your lifetime. How many lessons have been taught? How many books you have read? And think about what percentage of that stuff you're actually practicing in your life. Sounds weird coming from a pastor, especially one who believes so much in the necessity of the Word of God being ingrained into our lives, but I have said this, so many Christians need another sermon like they need another hole in the head. Because for many of us, what it does is that we're immune to it. We've just heard it so long, and we go through the motions, and we don't think about, am I putting into practice in obedience what I know? We have been working on the establishment and schedule of some of the things that will be involved in our ladies' ministry coming up. And in all likelihood, March the 15th, Sunday evening, March the 15th, ladies, we're going to have a meeting. I'll know that for sure this coming week, and we'll have it confirmed next Sunday for you. But you might mark that now. Now, March the 15th in the evening, ladies, a meeting to lay out the schedule and the purposes and the vision for our ladies' ministry. And as we've been discussing that, like all of the ministries in our church, we want that ministry to be tied to our identity in Christ, who we are in Christ. And we want the knowledge that we gain on Sunday mornings here and all the classes that we offer to be put into practice for ladies in particular and the roles to which God has called them. To put it another way, we want to see ladies living wisely. We want to see them applying the knowledge they have. Now, everybody's got their ideas about how various ministries ought to go. And many people will think that what our ladies and our men and anybody else needs are, is more knowledge. And our ladies' ministry will offer opportunities for that. But I'm here to tell you that, for my part, most of us have more knowledge than we've ever applied. And Jesus is saying, I'm calling you to obedience. James told us that. In James chapter 1, do not merely listen to the Word. And so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. James goes on to say, anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like a man who looks at his face in a mirror and after looking at himself, he goes away and he immediately forgets what he looks like. James says, to hear the word like we do on a regular basis, but then walk away without putting it into practice, applying it in our lives, is like a guy who looks in the mirror in the morning, sees he's got bedhead, sees he's got you know, all the effects of being asleep for whatever number of hours, and then walks away without doing anything. But James goes on to say, but the man who looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues to do this, not forgetting what he has heard, but doing it, he will be blessed in what he does. You see, friends, we are most certainly people who believe because the Bible teaches 
that our relationship with God is not something that we gain by what we do. But those who have a relationship with God do because they have that relationship. We do what we do because we have a relationship with Jesus, not in order to gain a relationship with Jesus. And James goes on to say in James chapter 2 that failure to demonstrate in our lives that we have a relationship with Jesus calls into question the reality of that relationship. He says, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds, can such faith save him? Can a faith that does not work save him? Faith is not works. And we are not saved by works but rather by faith. But hear this, faith works. Those who have faith then follow Jesus. Famously, James said, faith by itself, if not accompanied by action, is dead. The Apostle John in his first letter said this, If we claim to have fellowship with Him, yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not live by the truth. And he goes on to say, The man who says, I know him, but does not do what he commands is a liar, and the truth is not in him. Now I told you these are more scary words like last week. Stay with me to the end. Christianity is more than profession. And Christianity is more than knowledge. And Christianity is more than reform. More than reform. You see, the houses look the same. From the outside, looking above ground, you can't necessarily tell the difference. Until the test comes, you don't know that there's a problem with the foundation. And so the person looks the part. And the person acts the part. The person, by osmosis, has hung around Christian people long enough that he or she knows the lingo, knows what to do, and goes through the motions. But Christianity is more than reform. God is not interested in merely cleaning up one's act. Rather, God is interested in change on the outside that comes from the inside. Did you know, friends, it is possible to do the right things for the wrong reasons. It is possible for someone to do all the right things but not have the glory of God and a vital relationship with Jesus at the heart of those right things. And Jesus said as much to the religious leaders of his day when he said, you clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside you are full of greed and self-indulgence. First clean the inside of the cup and dish, then the outside also will be clean. So he says that you look good on the outside, but the inside, on the inside there is a problem. And then he goes on to say, you are like whitewashed tombs. You look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside you appear to be people as righteous, but on the inside full of hypocrisy and wickedness. These are religious leaders that Jesus is castigating for this outward reform that is not inward regeneration, life of the Spirit. John Stott, who wrote an excellent, excellent commentary on the Sermon on the Mount, from which I have benefited through this series, he said this, We need to consider that the Bible is a dangerous book to read and that the church is a dangerous society to join. 
For in reading the Bible, we hear the words of Christ. And in joining the church, we say we believe in Christ. As a result, we belong to the company described by Jesus as both hearing his teaching and calling him Lord. Our membership, therefore, lays upon us the serious responsibility of ensuring that what we know and what we say is translated into what we do. Christianity is more than outward reform. It's more than profession, more than knowledge, more than reform. Fourthly, I say, Christianity is more than this life. Christianity is more than this life. Now, here's why I say that. Because in this passage, verses 24 to 27, coupled with these other concluding verses of the Sermon on the Mount that we've looked at beginning in verse 13, they've been very hard, as I've already noted, and very convicting and scary. In fact, I used that word last week, that those words in verses 21 to 23 are perhaps the scariest words in all the Bible. And so the question arises, is Jesus seeking to scare people into the kingdom? Given that he's talked of a road to destruction, in verses 15 through 20, fire that burns unproductive branches, rejection of the disobedient last week, and now he speaks of the judgment and destruction again. And the answer to that question is yes, Jesus is scaring people into the kingdom. Noted New Testament scholar D.A. Carson has a great illustration. He says, you know, if I'm a friend of yours and there are floodwaters coming and you are asleep in your house and I come pounding at your door to arouse you from sleep, you may love your house and you therefore might ignore my warning. Or if you don't see the danger, you may think me to be a fool. Even though I'm warning you, a la Noah with his neighbors and the flood. Some people, he says, will thank you for the warning. But hear this, no one would accuse you of, quote, frightening me to safety. How dare you frighten me (laughs) into safety for what is coming? And whether or not you think these dire warnings from Jesus are appropriate depends on whether you believe the situation is as dangerous as he says. And whether or not you believe that depends on what you believe about Jesus. Hear this. Jesus is saying that there is a heaven to gain and a hell to shun. Jesus is saying there's more to life than this life. And in all of these verses, he is warning us there is a heaven to be gained, but there is a hell to be shunned. And that is why it is so serious. Now, you may not believe in hell, and so believe Jesus to be a fool. Well, then be honest and say that. I don't follow Jesus' words because I don't believe Jesus is right. I don't think there is this final destruction. Or you may love your sin so much that you refuse to leave it, like the guy in Carson's illustration who loves his house so much that even with the floodwaters coming, he's not going to leave it. In which case, you simply ignore Jesus' warnings. But the wise, 
Those who apply what they know. The wise live for another future day. Jesus regularly, and the Bible regularly points us to the fact that there is more to Christianity. There is more than this life. Jesus said in Matthew 10, just a few chapters over, Do not be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Do You see, Jesus is saying it's not just what you have now. It's not just the here and now. It's not just material, matter. But there's the immatter, the immaterial that matters. Now notice that reference, Matthew 10 and verse 28. Some of you may know the context of that. Because Jesus gives that warning, but then he gives these blessed verses just following verse 28 in Matthew chapter 10. He gives two verses of precious comfort when he says, Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet not one of them will fall to the ground outside your father's care, and even the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Now that's right after he says, Do not fear the one who can kill the body. And here's what he's saying. I will be with you every step of the way. You are in my hand. I know all about you. You are much more important than sparrows, and I know every hair, and not a hair, falls out of your head unless it be by the will of your Father. But the question for us is, do we believe that? So that we're willing to obey that and to look forward to this heaven to be gained and hell to be shunned. Christianity is more than profession, friends, more than knowledge, more than reform. It's more than this life, lastly. Christianity is more than you can do. Christianity is more than you can do. And if you've been listening even halfway, especially over the last few weeks in this Sermon on the Mount, you know, man, I can't do it. So now what? I mean, Jesus has just laid me bare. Jesus has just killed me in this sermon, and especially toward the end here. And a narrow gate and a wide gate and a broad road and a narrow road and leading to life and leading to destruction and, and, and wolves that are dressed in sheep's clothing and people who say, Lord, Lord, but don't have the reality. They profess but don't possess. And now today, people who look the part in the superstructure of their lives, their house, but they're not really at heart obedient to all that I say. Lord, how am I to stand? And the good news is, you can't do it. Christianity is more than you can do. Remember, friends, the Sermon on the Mount, thanks be to God. Matthew 5, 6, and 7 is sandwiched within Matthew chapter 1 and Matthew chapter 27. Now, what's in Matthew chapter 1? Matthew chapter 1 is the announcement of Jesus' birth. That this one who has come, who has been born of the virgin... You shall call his name, verse 21 of chapter 1, you shall call his name Jesus. Here's why. He will save his people from their sins. Thanks be to God. And then this Jesus gives the sermon. And in the sermon, he is making sure that you know how desperately you need him every moment of every day to save you, rescue you, deliver you from your sin. He has purposely, in these three chapters, dashed us to pieces. <coughs> causing us to fall at the foot of the cross. And that's what Matthew 27 is. 
the cross. Excuse me. I think that's my water. <laughs> but, but, but thank you, whoever. <clears throat> Matthew 1, Jesus comes to save his people from their sins. Matthew 27, Jesus is fulfilling the mission for which he came to do that very thing as he dies on the cross. And then in Matthew 28, verse 1, on the first day of the week, the tomb was empty. So I say in your outline, Christianity is more than you can do. Jesus lived for you. Jesus lived for you. And what you find between Matthew 1 and Matthew 27 and 28 is Jesus teaching like this, showing us how desperately we need him. But you find his life, his absolutely perfect life of righteousness. We are told by Matthew that Jesus came to fulfill all righteousness. And so as you read all of this and you say, I can't do it, then you got it. You're right. You can't do it. And that's precisely what Jesus is showing us. You can't do it. You need me desperately and every moment of every day. And he lived for you. He lived the life that you should have lived and that I should have lived. The Bible says in Romans 5, through the disobedience of the one man, that is Adam, the many were made sinners. So also through the obedience of the one man, Jesus the many will be made righteous. Jesus lived for you. Lastly, in your outline, Jesus died for you. And his death is the culmination of the obedience of his life. And so when you see the Bible referring to Jesus' death most often, it's referring, yes, to his death, to his death and that was necessary to pay the penalty for our sin, but the death was the culmination of this righteous life of obedience. And his resurrection is the Father's acceptance of both his life and his death. That's why, forgive the grammar, ain't nothing you can do to begin a relationship with Jesus. Because it is as bad as he has laid out in the Sermon on the Mount. And God gave a great list of rules in the law in the first part of your Bible. And if anybody could have established a relationship with God through rules, it would have been through those rules. But here's what the New Testament says. Galatians 2, a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. We are justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. Why will no one be justified by the works of the law? Because we're all as bad as Jesus says. That's why. We can't do it. And Galatians 2 also says, If righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. So I hope you, like I, over these last few weeks, have been convicted and driven to your knees. But then I hope you, like I, will do as Jesus intends and on your knees fall again at the foot of the cross. And thank Jesus that he paid the penalty for my sin and he lived the life that I should have lived. And then let's invoke 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin, and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Don't throw up your hands. Say, no, thank you, Lord Jesus, for doing what I could not do. And now that I have this relationship with you, by believing who you are and what you have done, by your grace, I want to obey, build my life on obedience in every area of my life to what you tell me in your word. 
Your take-home truth then is this. Christianity is more than religion. It's more than religion. It is a relationship to Christ as both your Savior and your Lord. 